0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: This week on Democracy Sausage, why are centre-left parties in decline here and in Europe? And is the answer to tack back to the centre, as the ALP seems to be doing, or should they be braver still? And while we're on Brave, we look at Jeremy Corbyn's radical election manifesto. Full of big ideas, but does he know how to eat a bacon sandwich? Welcome to Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny, and this week we turn up the hot plate to Max to grill a controversial gourmet sausage that has divided opinion between the old school traditionalists and those calling for something new. We will hash out the crisis afflicting social democratic parties the world over and peel back the onion layers on the orthodox left to see if these parties are falling behind or falling over. To do this, I'm glad to be joined by my regular partner at the Democracy Sausage Barbecue, colleague at the ANU's prestigious School of Politics and International Relations, Dr Maria taflaga and a very special guest from Flinders University, Dr. Rob Mainwaring, who among his countless achievements has co-edited a new book with Paul Kennedy called Why the Left Loses, the Decline of Centre-Left in Comparative Perspective. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a great pleasure. Now- Let's let's think about this book. Tell us about this book, Why the Left Losers. Why did you uh, decide to put this together? You've got a whole host of academic authors, but obviously, um, you know, this is a book of uh, some prescience really about what's going on at the moment and into the future.
2: Sure. I mean, there were sort of two drivers. One was sort of personal and one was uh, sort of more about my kind of... Uh, research interests, so I look at the centre left uh, um, and that kind of family of labour parties, and to sort of track how they're going on. I'm from the UK, so I particularly follow the British Labour Party. I'd write a book uh, of my PhD, uh, which no one read. Had a dreadful title, and uh, I, don't th- <laughs> I don't even think my, my 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 mum read it, and she promised she would. And so I after my mum
0: hasn't read mine.
2: <laughs> <laughs> they a common thing. So I, one of the things that I decided after that is I thought I wanted to write or be involved in a, a writing project where people might uh, look at it or be engaged and particularly just beyond academia. So he came up with the title Why the Left Loses. Um, in one sense, there's a bit of clickbait, but also to really just try and galvanise interest in this. And the research um, part of it, the story is that there was just this, uh, terrible story about centre-left mainstream parties just doing terribly, terribly poorly. There was a quite a famous speech by David Miliband, who was going to uh, be a potential leader of the British Labour Party. And he, he catalogued even, uh, almost 10 years ago, just some dreadful electoral results for all the major kind of parties like Germany and Spain and the UK. And, we kind of wanted to build upon that and just look at some of those cases and just unpick this story. So why why was it all going so terribly wrong?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I, hope, I hope you've come up with all of the answers uh, because – I mean, I notice you've written in that uh, title, as you say, it might be a bit of clickbait, but it's also in the, in the sort of present tense, why the left loses. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah, and I think we said in the, in the title of the book, it's not that the left will always lose or the left will never win again. It's, uh, we were particularly looking from a time period. And basically, you can sort of date it from the GFC to roughly about now, um, to about sort of 2018, 2019. It's
1: pretty odd, really, when you think about it. So that, so that sort of a calamity that happens from excessive, excessive capitalism from, you know, unsort un of restrained greed. That's, results in the left going backwards.
2: That, I mean, that's right. And there was, uh, it was a very good book by David Bailey kind of making the same observation is that actually the GFC should have been The perfect moment for the center left to galvanize, to offer a a kind of story uh, against the worst excesses of American capitalism, the subprime and so on, and to kind of rebuild a a kind of, a different kind of political economy. And they, they failed dreadfully. And, and then across the board, um, you know, particularly in Germany, in France, in the UK, uh, Italy, some of the major centers where we've seen social democratic parties do well, and even in Scandinavia for a certain time. Um, they were unable to win office or tell a convincing story about what they stand for
0: so one one of the things I found really interesting in your book is that you know you argue that the the left has lost the support of both capital and labor you know and so I mean why do you think that's happened rob was
2: well, it's, it's a Great question. And I'm not entirely sure that the book fully answered it, although I would, of course, encourage everyone to buy multiple copies. Christmas, <laughs> of course, is coming up, so it's a perfect uh, uh, gift filler.
0: It, it's very reasonably priced.
2: Well, that's, uh, that sort of, <laughs> that's the other great uh, thing about academic books. Um, so we tried to unpick that story about why were they losing. So we had this sort of broad framework as we looked at institutional factors, we looked at ideas, and we looked at individuals, so agency structure and ideas, and that interplay. Nothing is ever – um, uh, single causal. So, we want to kind of unpick that a bit. And what was really interesting is um, on the idea side is the sort of third way kind of response to it. So, if you take that period of the 1990s and the sort of early 2000s, there's a, there's a great statistic where I think 15 of the then 17 EU member states were led by social democratic or centre left political parties. I mean, that's a kind of Big block, and you had the big story. You had Gerhard Schroeder uh, leading the SPD, and you had, of course, Tony Blair and the New Labour Experiment, and you people like Lionel Jospin. So you had a real dominance of. Of broadly what we would call third-way um, governments. And they had at that time a very convincing kind of narrative. And they seemed to be able to bridge the, the to answer your question about uh the story about being pro-business, saying like the economy's globalized, uh we need to kind of we can't do the old school Keynesian sort of thing. We we need to change it. But then uh and then recognizing that the labour force was changing and that unions have a different kind of role. So they bridged that and it was a really compelling narrative. But then what's since happened is since the fall of those governments is centre-left parties and leaders just haven't been able to come up with a convincing kind of narrative. So one of the cases that we look at in the British context was the leadership of Ed Miliband. Ed Miliband was really interesting. And to tack on the uh, democracy sausage, there's a very famous photo of Ed Miliband um, eating a bacon sandwich and making this dreadful mess. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a kind of real symbol of like – and I think The Sun had the headline, this is a man who can't even eat – a bacon sandwich. How can he run the country?
0: Well, to, to make like a spurious correlation, that <laughs> that photo of Bill Shorten eating the sausage sandwich from the
2: yes, from the hot dog from yeah. the middle.
0: Yeah, so this is clearly causal. Clearly, this, no, I'm joking. Where, where Scott
2: Morrison, you know, savaged the that's meat right, pie right. and and savaged the the Labor Party at the election. And, so and, and
0: Turnbull didn't know how to eat a pie either. I, I think there is
2: a, a, clearly and Tony Abbott ate a raw onion.
0: That's right. So <laughs> I mean, I think if you don't know how to eat food, I think that's no. Anyway,
1: <laughs> don't um, get filmed eating food. That is the actual uh, that's, that's uh, that's thing. True. I mean, yeah. Clinical yeah. scientists are just doing the wrong thing. We're well, looking yeah. at the wrong sort of yeah, – you, Your problem has been you're focusing on the substance, right? <laughs> yeah. What you've actually got to focus on
2: is the side the show. The trivia. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's yeah.
1: right.
0: But we interrupted you, Rob. I'm really sorry. <laughs>
2: no. And oh, all I was going to say is we looked at uh, Ed Miliband and, and he, you just find this intellectual restlessness – so he plays around with these blue I- blue labour ideas, which are kind of resurfacing here in Australia a bit. He talks about a one nation kind of turn. He talks about ideas of pre distribution. Just, just he, for for
1: for people listening who are less familiar with the the British scene and therefore the British terminology, um, you, when you talk about a one nation kind of, I mean, one nation means something else in Australia. It's the yes. you know, the name of this you know right wing populist party. Um, so, what are you what are you saying that he was doing so, there?
2: So, the one nation tradition is actually a conservative tradition. It kind of speaks to kind of Disraeli, very famous mm. kind of conservative uh, leader, prime minister, and and a one nation. Disraeli was really concerned about the kind of growing inequality gap and said, how can we reforge a conservative politics where there's one nation, rich and poor? So really concerned about um, levels of poverty. And so rather than just having sectional interests like working class or other interests, how do we govern for there? So uh, Ed Miliband was playing around with this saying, well, look, how do we build a kind of new social democratic politics for everyone? So one nation, rich and poor. So how do we... And how did that differ really from what Blair had done? Because New Labour had very strong
1: overtones of that as well.
2: Yeah, well, I think...
1: Except that it had been...
2: Rhetor- rhetorically, uh, I mean, Miliband we sort of fell over himself, to say, like, the period of New Labour is over. This is hmm. something quite different. What the problem was, there was no real intellectual content to it. Whereas there was a sort of compelling... You could be critical of the New Labour project, but there was a sort of compelling sort of story about... You know, working class alliances and coalitions. Whereas um, Miliband really just sort of failed to struggle to define what that one nation was. And what was one of the strategic or tactical mistakes is that they would launch these ideas. Journalists would sort of immediately say, well, okay, can you give us a policy example of what that means? And, and the, and the Labour would be kind of stumbling to kind of come up with a credible answer. But I guess for me, what was interesting, he's just intellectually curious trying around with these things so they talk about community organizing so they begin to sort of say well look can we build institutions or community capacity away from the state so in in the uk a very strong status tradition we build the nhs and the the blue labor movement was to say well look actually part of where the left has gone wrong is it's too status it's too Kind of moved this, and New Labour sort of played with these ideas, but didn't
1: picking really. up a little on 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 Obama Democrats really. I mean, there, there'd been a kind of a that, that's how Obama himself emerged as a political force, but but also because they don't have that status tradition in the U.S. and they've had therefore, particularly in the African American community and working class communities, they've had more of the, that grassroots organizational structure.
2: And that's and I think there was a lot of ideological sort of cross-fertilization i think uh british labor had gone to places like the us to try and pick up on some of these stories and and i think they they talked about new policy areas to kind of build up sort of the community sector which really intersected with david cameron's big society agenda there mm. was a very they were um there was a real push on both sides of politics to kind of can we reformulate things um, away from the state. Um But then actually what happens under Miliband is that he remembers that the state can be useful and it can be a desirable thing. And he goes back to quite a traditional form, particularly around nationalisation. So he says, well, actually there are points where unlike New Labour, where it's probably important that the state has a kind of control or a really important, much stronger regulatory role uh, there. But I suppose my central point is that... um The Miliband area was really interesting. He kind of makes the party more social democratic on more traditional lines. But still, there's a sort of hollowness almost of sorts to some of the the overarching kind of story. And that to me was a bit of an exemplifier or outlier of many of these kind of centre-left governments trying to find a post-third way story. And some of the research we were doing, uh, talking about this week, actually, here at the ANU, very prestigious place, was uh, about the changing policy profiles of the centre-left. And what you find across the board is that most of them now have kind of pushed back against that third-way economic agenda, and they are talking about controlling the economy, they're talking about nationalising, and intervening in a way that, you know, that kind of centrist um, Hawk Keating kind of style politics, or um, you know, it's uh, just I, yeah, yeah, is is very is very different. So they've gone, they've pushed back hard against that. But whether it's enough to save them from electoral kind of uh, kind oblivion, of, yeah, it's the thing. I mean, the other thing since the book, of course, is that a number of places um, the left have come back. And one of the things we say is the left will win again sometimes, but um, Sweden. There's a very interesting social democratic green coalition. Um, Portugal's really interesting. I've got a colleague, Eunice Go. She writes very interesting things on this. And there's the government there is called the contraption. It's a sort of a coalition <laughs> of the left. And she just talks about, or her research is very much about how the contraption works. And, and under the Portuguese, uh, government, a center left led one, they've, they've managed to pass budgets and do, Interesting things. Spain, of course, we've just had recent elections, and uh, there's a sort of coalition now between Podemos, the po- left populist party, and the centre left. So they are they are coming back into power, of course. But then, if we were to kind of uh, use Australia as example, they're also losing elections and and losing them badly in in lots of ways. Yeah, we'll
1: come to Australia in just a minute. But Maria, I just wanted to ask your thoughts on this we we started off talking about why the gfc the sort of essentially the collapse of the global financial system or near collapse of it due to excessive greed and uh, you know the whole ethos that was that was crook at the heart of it uh, why that didn't benefit the left i wonder if there wasn't uh, some sense that the state had lost its capacity to respond so what the gfc really presages is a whole period of pretty uncomfortable living for the people that would have been the natural constituents of of Labor parties or of social democratic parties. In other words, they all end up, you know, with we, we end up with either recessions in most cases, uh, but at, at, even at best, you know, very flat growth and essentially a state unable to really do much about it because the state's been hollowed out in that sense.
0: Yeah, I think this is actually kind of really interesting in the sense that, you know, Australia was, you know, it's, it's the outlier in terms of its performance around the the GFC. And I think I remember one of the things I do remember at the time of the Rudd-Gillard government and, um, you know, the, the sort of like looming crisis of the GFC and then we're all living through the GFC and all of this is that why Labor didn't use this as an opportunity to sort of reimagine the state's role in our society, because it's really listening, really interesting to listen to hear what you were sort of saying, Rob. You know, I mean, I sort of look at more right-wing parties, and um, one of the things I've sort of found really interesting about looking at um, right-wing parties is that they seem to sort of not really know quite what to do in this post-GFC world, where you know the sort of classic solutions. Um, of yesteryear, you know, like, well, let's just deregulate it, let's just privatise it, mm. you know, like mm. there, there's like less evidence that that's actually going to work because um, of the rise of behavioural economics as just one dimension of that, sort of proving that people aren't actually as rational actors or and, econs. And, and there's yeah. even some
1: evidence that it's part of the problem. I mean, if you look yeah. at the sort of rising energy prices, for example, in this country and you think about the privatisation agenda – and the limited power governments now have to actually directly intervene in those in yeah. those um you know, market sectors. I
0: uh, know, which is bizarre when they want to just renationalise stuff. Like, whoa, you know, that's yeah. that's crazy. But yeah, so I mean part of me sort of wonders um part of me just kind of wonders like how much of this is a is a problem of a certain type of politics? And I think you're right, Rob, like there are specific features that are prone to the left. But I also just think like, oh, how much of this is just you know, society effectively trying to reconfigure itself for, you know, whatever a new a new kind of age of politics. Like, there seems to be a lot in kind of common with those, like, periods of sort of flux, like the 1970s being a classic one, the Depression era being another. I mean, do you just think that society's changing?
2: Uh, yeah. Like, obviously I it's mean, changing, there's a lot, yeah. I mean, there's a lot going on there, yeah. yeah? And I think, I mean... I mean, a couple of responses to, to some of the things we're talking about is, is one of the interesting things post GFC is that I think generally speaking, if you look at opinion polls, most people on average trust center, center right parties over center left parties. Yeah. And I think there is a sort of instinct in terms of economic uncertainty to turn to the right, not the left regardless of the economic performance of the right. So in fact, the right, to my mind, their economic record is quite patchy. At so
1: is that, be- is that because uh, at times of of stress, of social stress and hardship and insecurity, people become more inwardly focused, they're less
2: altruistic, it's less better inclined? Better the devil you know. And there's an element of that. And I think also that on the economic story, it's the kind of looking at your personal wallet and your purse. It's kind of um, – uh one of the things that worked very well for those centre-right parties was not was to shift the focus from say subprime subprime kind of mortgages and global kind of economics to say actually it's prolificate state spending. So what yeah. punishes a lot of those kind of countries is is kind of uh that kind of pivot to say, well, look, we're spending too much, we've got to reduce and introduce that wave of austerity. And the the left then get caught between that and they can't reconfigure or reimagine where Actually, they've got election after election coming up and they're, be- they're under intense pressure. So, of course, for the European families, the, I mean, the, the, cra- the classic case is Greece. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a term, pacific- a term I can't even say, but uh, we'll try again. <laughs> One more run up, paso yeah. which is the destruction, the death of a social democratic party. Which was called PASOK, right? Yeah. Yes. And um, this is the... Party of Papandreou. And- that's and- right. And they've kind of... And they, and they die because... Um, Institutionally, they're constrained by the European Union. They're constrained by the stability and growth pact and the pressure to put debt down. And you then get this kind of tension going up where a populist saying, look, actually, we need public spending to alleviate the kind of poverty. And, and so you see the rise of the populist left and, and social democrats are kind of caught in that kind of space. So I think your wider point as well about sociological changes is true. And there's lots of evidence that people are changing different ways and we see one symptom of that is the changing party system so i think there is a generally speaking a shift away from two party major systems and you see a, a greater ecology of parties so
0: we also see voters are shifting between
2: yes. parties
0: yeah across new kind of cleavage issues immigration being the primary cross cutting cleavage
2: yes mm. and and age is We talk about Brexit in particular. Exactly, age is the is the huge uh, kind of uh, whatever the metaphor is difference or cleavage between Mm. the the thing. And I just so with this kind of growing or changing party sort of system, what you find is then left parties have new competitors. So they have the traditional right saying, you know, you can't borrow more; you've got to kind of cut back spending. You get uh, left parties like Podemos saying no, we, we need a radical overhaul of politics, and then of course you have far right uh, and populist parties, the Marine Le Pen's and so on, eating into that traditional kind of uh, kind of base of left parties, saying well actually we need protectionism, we need. A bit of dose of racism. Let's be honest about some of these parties, and and we can kind of will speak for you as as your as your kind of popular voice. So, the left parties are, are kind of caught in this in this terrible electoral vice in many places.
1: Yeah, and it seemed very much to be the case in Australia. Um, I mean, we, we, we have avoided technically a recession, but we're suffering an economy that's very weak in a whole range of ways. Wages have been flat for a long time. They're show, showing no signs of, of of moving. Unemployment's actually creeping up, despite all of the attempts by the, by the Reserve Bank to put stimulus into the economy using the monetary policy levers it has, you know, winding down the the cash rate and so forth, which doesn't seem to be doing all that much. And in that circumstance. You would think there would be a degree of you know, a fairly high degree of pent up frustration in the electorate about the way things are being run at the moment, and you'd expect voters to be inclined to change. Now, everything pointed to that in the lead up to the election in May, and in fact, it did not occur. It uh, was the, a close
0: election. It was a close election.
1: Well, all, most Australian close, elections yes, are close elections. Yes. Uh, it there were okay, the, the major gap in this election really was the gap between the expectation of what was going to happen and what actually did happen. There was a widespread expectation that Labor was going to win. That expectation pervaded Labor as well. Uh, It saw the Labor Party put together an extremely ambitious, uh, some say unwieldy agenda, uh, many, many costed policies, some 250 costed policies um, without a particularly charismatic leader and the Labor Party failed. Uh, So now Labor is doing some remedial work. Some people are pretty confused about what that remedial work adds up to at the moment.
2: And I think for me, what's the interesting part of that um, the story of the 2019 Australian election is that there are clear parallels with what went on in Australia with this wider story of the centre-left. And I think the the, the graph or the, the picture that's really telling for me is the is the structural decline of the first primary vote for the Labour Party. Yes. So if you look, go back to, you know, the kind of Hawke-Keating area and it's high forties, these are big mm. numbers. 2007, there's a, there's a still a relatively high, it's like sort of high thirties mm. for kind of Rudd. Um, and you know, a big whopping kind of win there in lots of ways. But since that time, the, the, the primary vote for the Labour Party has not recovered. So even, you're quite right, it's close election and, you know, it was the expectation sort of gap. But actually, what I think is a sort of a, a more structural problem for the Labour Party here is actually, can they recover that primary vote at all? Or is it actually the genies out of the bottle now? We're shifting to, uh, you know, more minor parties sort of playing a role, possibly penetrating a bit more at the lower house. And and w- what then that means for, for kind of the future of the Labour Party. So, A lot of Albanese's kind of attempt to reorient it or lessons learned. I think, fine, you can do that and you can say clearly, you know, Labour's review would say there were clearly things that they didn't do that were specific to Australia. But I think there's also this kind of wider story about, well, what do they stand for? What's the identity of the party in this kind of era? How do you then latch onto it? And it's striking, of course, for me, like I think how Morrison went in with such little policy, such Un, you know, apart from that, was us. the
1: charm. Apparently,
2: yeah. <laughs> well, that's right, and I think uh, better you know, the devil you know. That's that's right, and you know, was it small target? There's there's less to kind of hit, and, uh, and in one sense, but so also it
1: was very simple to communicate. Uh, you know, some some basic values there, which yeah. Were, at a know, time of we're for the economy, we're for, we're for jobs, what? both of which have actually not been particularly good for them since the election. I mean, that, you know, the the whole the promise of all of that, as simple as it was, has not been delivered. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the lesson that Labor takes out of it is, you know, uh, among many, is don't try and do too much. Don't try and be too adventurous. And but, don't try and change the country from opposition.
2: When, when I, mean, is, are they, I mean, the interesting question is, are they the lessons? Because I sort of – I feel like I do – I do. on the one hand, I think that's quite right. I think my, one of my favorite moments in one of the leaders' debates was that um, – Bill Shorten was talking about the franking credits policy and and uh, he was talking quite for kind of relatively long time and one had
1: to, to try and explain it that was well, and that's the it, and
2: that's it and and Morrison quips kind of says well bill you take as much time as you need because you've got more taxes to explain <laughs> and it was just like a it was like ouch and it yeah. was but it kind of it nicely captured that problem but you have to say though does that mean then that we can't think we can't reimagine Australian politics that we can't say Plushcare.com/slash/weightloss. loss. theres isn't a point or opportunity we could go to the Australian electorate from either left or right to say we can think bold ideas or have a really different, engaging narrative. I just think the the worry is then that that takes you down a sort of technocratic kind of path for governance. You know, we say, well, look, we can do what's called like valence. We can just be the best economic manager. We we'll just we'll just keep the sort of Kind of the clock run, yeah, that's right, and um, and and I just feel well, I feel like that that actually doesn't serve either right or left, particularly in terms of that. So I just, so I mean, there are lessons learned, and of course the factions and the traditions with the Labor Party are having that kind of battle. But I just, I kind of worry that um,
0: it's already happening. I mean, I mean, Australians like love handing over more and more decision-makers making to independent authorities, right, because we ultimately don't trust our politicians. And it it is actually kind of in some ways – you know, alarming for overall representation. But I, I have a really hard question for you, Rob. I'll like, go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we're talking about Labor's primary vote, and I think what that was what was really kind of interesting and important about the sort of review of Labor about the fact that wealthy people were sort of happy to vote for Labor, knowing that it would cost them, but you know, blue collar workers in 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 Queensland who should be their natural supporters weren't. So, you know, like, and this idea of Labor recovering its primary vote, like, is this just delusional thinking? Like, given Diverge's law and the way it operates in the Senate, the way it's driving minor party voting, should the Greens and Labor start thinking about being coalition governments?
1: I'm going to put, take that question on notice and we'll come back and we'll get Rob's answer to that. We'll just take a quick break now uh, and we'll come back in a minute. We'll get Rob's answer to that and I think then move on to talk a bit more about Labor and how whether there are some parallels with what Jeremy Corbyn's doing in the UK where there actually is an election on at the moment and uh, you can see some quite obvious parallels. Back in a moment.
0: Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
1: Welcome back. Now, I'm going to invite you, Maria, to put that question to Rob again because it was such a fascinating one. I think it's a good way to touch off the second half of this pod.
0: Yeah. So, Rob, I guess what I want to know is, is it time for Labor to stop thinking of itself as a party that governs alone? Should it now be thinking about how it governs in coalition?
2: great question not sure i know the answer so here's my non answer i guess so i guess if if that structural vote is in decline then then surely the the hard heads within the party will be looking around to say you know is this, this is now a kind of reality and in which case what should the relationship be between with the greens and kind of labor and with actually with colleagues we tried to do some research around the kind of policy relationship between the two one of the kind of findings you get if you just map or try and measure the policy difference is that labor are on many policy issues closer to the liberals than they are on the greens and yeah that's a
1: really fascinating thing if I can just stop you there for a moment um because some people are tempted to say well why can't the greens be to labor what the nats are to the liberals and that is you know essentially a party that uh, you know, f- they form a coalition with on an ongoing basis. But they really cannibalize each other to an extent in the inner cities, that is Labour and the Greens, and then there are some pretty wide gaps in, in, in between their two positions. It's not really analogous at all, is it?
2: Yeah, it's um, it's really difficult. There's a, there's a great book called All That's Left, uh, edited by, I think it was Tim Soup-Palmerson, yep. uh, well, I guess, correct his you, name. You uh, did and, well, yeah. And uh, Nick Dyransworth. And there are two great chapters in that book. One writer says... Um Look, Labour and the Greens, the way it's heading, is going to have to be a coalition story. They're both progressive. They're both particularly around the environment and climate change. This is the future. They've got to think seriously about what those sorts of sets of relationships uh, should be. Let's go for it. Let's try and build a pro- progressive block. We could rule for for years, decades. Next chapter. Labour should never work with the Greens. The way they're not the same. They're kind of the, uh, the like Craig Emerson's comments uh, this week in the Finn Review. Very um, uh, strong anti-green feeling. I mean, pe- people I know with the Labour Party have very strong views about the Greens. They don't they hate see, each other. They do, and they oh, kind I of can remember what happened in two thousand and nine. I mean,
1: you know, the, the Greens voted against the CPRS.
2: I mean, I, I think the I think as that that's. A, CPRS story is complex and more nuanced. There's a very good piece by, I think, Paddy Manning in The Monthly talking around actually fought on both sides. It's kind of interesting when you kind of walk through or he walks through and that's just one reading. I think that's right. Many on Labour blame the Greens for that. And you would say, I mean, regardless of what happened, it's just a total missed opportunity. This is like a lost decade for Australian public policy on climate policy. It's just been you know, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean,
1: I think as as I was saying in that seminar we we're in the other day, I think it's quite possible that we'd be talking about uh, uh, you know Australia's mu- emissions trading system as part of the story of its 29 years of unbroken growth, and w- it would have given us an enormous amount of authority as a country to be arguing for similar systems around the world and for much tougher action. Instead, as you say, we've had a, a decade of dysfunction and gridlock, and we have no leadership on this question oh, or on energy. And the Greens policy. need to actually fess up to that. Well,
0: problem. I. I think we should also just think about the fact that, you know, the Howard government was actively considering an emissions trading scheme yeah. in two thousand and four. And to be blunt, if the Howard government had legislated for it, then um, you know that would be consensus across the political but, but spectrum. But to be fair to
1: the Howard government, I'm not, I'm not, you know, carrying a torch for the Howard government. But the reality is, it went to the two thousand and seven election having had that Shergold review, which produced. A blueprint for an emissions trading scheme, but you know that that did take some time to work up, uh, and that was effectively its policy in in two thousand and seven. Um,
0: if you, if you look so, if you actually so look at,
1: at the, the time, just to finish that point, at the time its logic was, and it's pretty sound logic now when you think about it, its logic was this needs to be worked out using a market mechanism, which was what Labor picked up with the CPRS. You can pick some holes in the CPRS, and I agree with with Rob's point about how the, how uh, Labor uh, you know tactically performed poorly through that, you know, not having negotiations with Bob Brown and the like. But
0: But if you actually look at the timeline of the development of that policy, it was not inconceivable that they could have done it in that term. It was, you know, that that Uh, policy was put before cabinet, then rejected and picked up later because of the political problems.
2: You you two would know this better than me. But I mean, I thought, particularly under Malcolm Turnbull, it was a, there was another window. My understanding is that Labor tacked more to the liberals away from the Greens because, they thought they could, you know, get Liberal votes to kind of get it across as well. So there was they did get
1: two in the end as it happened. They got two Liberals across the floor in the Senate for the final vote on it but not the Greens.
2: That's right.
0: Well, I mean, that was part of, um, I guess, ultimately what Rudd wanted to kind of do. But he tried to have his cake and eat it they too. They were trying to
1: nail Turnbull. That's they right. were trying to make yeah. it really hard for the Libs. They were trying yeah. to really – it was personal between Rudd and Turnbull – it may have some. It may go some way to explaining why Turnbull, as prime minister, was so eager not to let Kevin Rudd ever have any uh, support from Australia for that UN Secretary uh, General job. Um, but yes, I even at the time as a journalist in the gallery, I, I, I remember quizzing mm. Labor Party uh, ministers uh, and and uh, you know the sort of senior officials about why they were going so hard against Turnbull because Turnbull. Was their lib, you know, he was the guy in, he was the leader of the Liberal Party at the time in opposition and who was actually most inclined towards this market mechanism idea and wanted to get some action on climate change. And yet they were really sort of interested in politically skewering him. So I, I do accept the fact that Labor performed badly in that regard. But this policy should have been seen to be above politics. And I think the Greens have never, never. Accepted that they did anything wrong in regard to that. And I think that uh, says something about the sort of
2: the cult. The only point I think is kind of interesting, taking a step back around this, is, is in one sense how centre left parties look to market mechanisms. So in one sense, a carbon tax or state intervention would be a kind of classic social democratic yeah. response to this. But there was this, there was something about the kind of, um, Neoliberal logic and dominance of that discourse that center left parties go to market mechanisms, um, to kind of try and find these kind of solutions. So
1: lowest cost abatement. That was the, that was the aim. And yeah. the market me- mechanism appeared to offer that. Uh, and, and you're right. I mean, there's a sort of a certain amount of political cover in doing it that way as well. So yeah. Using all- the market to drive this change in,
2: in behavior. But it's, but for me, it's this, like, the strategic moments where they go, let's go state or market and, And that kind of flux and fluidity and for the centre-left, some of that anchoring has gone. Some of those principles, right or wrong, normatively you'd say it's a good thing or bad thing. But actually it's just this kind of uncertainty now or has been about how they kind of respond to something. And is it
1: that instinct Do you think that, and I suppose I've asked this a couple of times now in different ways, but is it that instinct that has actually eroded confidence in what centre-left parties stand for, that they themselves walked away from uh, that first instinct Defense of the state's role in things and went to market mechanisms and went to into sort of pro-business policies. We've then seen, you know, some of the excesses of of, of kind of a, you know a, the, the neoliberal marketplace and governments and political parties don't appear to have many answers. But,
2: I mean, the classic example of that, I think, would be Germany and the SPD. So under uh, Gerhard Schroeder, under what are called the Hearts Four reforms, there was a big shift about labour force uh, flexibility. So in a very much social market economy, which with strong labor regulations and strong uh, defense of kind of workers' rights, Schroeder comes in on the left, uh, introduces a whole series of flexible working processes which shift the balances in favor of employers. He gets punished by voters for it, in one sense betraying his natural constituency. And arguably, or some scholars would argue, that one of the things that Angela Merkel has benefited from were a whole series of reforms done by a, a kind of centre-left government in a sort of neoliberal kind of sense mm. that have kind of meant the German economy has been able to recover and track through like, the worst of like, the Europe's uh, debt crisis and so on. Well, so- there's a
1: parallel with Australia here again. Totally. With, yeah. with what yeah. happened with Labor and but- you know, the Ke- hawke Keating years and, and the benefits that then flowed to the government after that, the Howard government.
0: Well, even just the GFC.
1: So, yeah. so, 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 well, we, the GFC is a very good example. You're yeah. right.
2: So, do we have a scenario where you can go? You can't go to uh, a electorate and tell uh, an electorate that you um, you want to raise taxes to increase public s- services, and that, or that when you get or governments do in office, and then they um, do things like stimulus measures, then they won't be electorally rewarded from despite actually probably being really important policy responses at a time. So it's a it's a kind of paradox which has probably got more acute for the centre left. I suppose that would be my last observation mm-hmm. on that one.
1: Let's talk about the parallels now that we the sort of obvious parallels that we can see now between what's happening in your home country in Britain with Corbyn uh and what happened with Labour here in, in the in the May election. Uh, that is, you know, the the notion of putting a big policy agenda out there into the uh into the electoral marketplace. And whether there are, whether it's all going to end the same way for, for Corbyn Labour.
2: It's, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. And, I mean, one of the things you would say is that, um, you know, in the nineties, two thousands, there was a coming together of the Australian and the Labour parties. There was cross-fertilisation, uh, when Blair and Brown were, um, were kind of junior shadows, they went across, they kind of met, uh, Keating and, and, uh, Keating, Hall, yeah, yeah. and they kind of, and Keating claims to be a mentor for, for Tony Blair and, for a while there's a kind of real closeness between the two parties. And and in fact it's clear there's a very nice book by a guy called David O'Reilly who kind of maps some of the things that Australian uh Labour gave to new Labour and and that relationship. But the parties have converged. Um diverged. That's the word. I get it right to basic terms. Uh, The parties have (laughs) diverged extraordinarily. I mean, when I lived in London and, uh, you know, you go to rallies and things like that, you'd see Jeremy Corbyn, you know, there he would be, Parliament Square, you know, with the megaphone, rallying the troops, consistently voting against the party. And if you'd said at that time in the 2000s, oh, Jeremy Corbyn will be leader of the Labour Party, it's, You'd it's extraordinary. I can't. Locked I mean, I can't think party. of a Labour figure.
1: I think it's still mad, but we'll come back to that. Well, <laughs> I, think, I think as
2: a Labour, I think as a Labour figure, there's no, you know, Doug Cameron. It, there's no one even remotely close to what Corbyn was and now is. So this, you know, this accidental prime ministerialship of uh, or would be prime ministerialship of Jeremy Corbyn is really interesting because he never wanted it. He kind of won it by accident. But then the left of the party have managed to cement um, some control and and direction. And so you see a lot of um, now this kind of leftward kind of shift. But I, I want to put some caveats on some of the, the, the thing because I think one of the confusing things is people confuse Corbyn with the Labour Party and their Labour Party policies. So they've just released their 2019 manifesto and it's pretty – it is pretty radical and extraordinary in lots of ways which we'll talk about. But actually, uh, we did some work with a colleague, Evan Smith, comparing British labour manifestos and if you compare uh, – the biggest radical departure uh, was actually Ed Miliband's manifesto. It was extraordinarily different in terms of very old school sort of social democratic in lots of responses, nationalisation and so on and – the for the many, not the few 2017 manifesto, so many british general elections, I keep losing track <laughs> of the dates, um, was not a million miles off it in terms of what Miliband's agenda was. And yes, so that we come to 2019, the spending pledges are huge in this 2019, but actually it's still part of this continual kind of story uh, with this. And I think people... The confusion is, or not confusion, I would say is that people's reaction against Jeremy Corbyn t- tends to mask around some of this agenda. So, so for example, one of the things they've done uh, is to try and shore up their economic credibility. They've just released what's called like the gray manifesto, which is the costings and on a number of kind of metrics, really what this vast, extraordinary Public spending would do probably takes the UK, which is fe- features sort of fifteenth, sixteenth in terms of spending on public services. You know, very relatively low levels. It only takes you up to sort of kind of Austria, Germany, uh, and clearly the Nordics as well. So, so yes, it looks like these are big numbers. It's a significant thing. i do not underplay the kind of radicalism, and of course they they want to sell that, but it's not. It's not the craziest uh of crazy although it's, kind it's of,
0: crazy relative to what exists
2: yes I, yeah. I that would be my point and i and i think um and, and in one sense like John mcdonald the the uh shadow treasurer, is trying to kind of remake the British political economy and he's trying to introduce new mechanisms, so for example, he wants a national investment bank because he sees a failure of the banking sector. Well, the banking sector failed. You Mm. know, the kind of when Royal uh, Bank of Scotland went under, you saw the kind of bonuses, the over-leveraging. Well, actually, the banking sector failed. So this is actually not an insensible response. And if you looked at de Gaulle in the, you know, 50s or, there was a kind of governments of left and right had a different attitudes towards kind of banking. So I... I guess my my general response is yes, this is really different. And you know, so they're offering free broadband uh, for the whole country. There's a free education for skills for six years, which people can use. There's a huge. They want to create a national social care service, so they want to kind of uh, invest heavily in social care in terms of these things, in part redressing austerity and the the. Because you know, of the course there of,
0: were huge cuts in the UK.
2: I mean they were extraordinary. I've got a friend who worked in local governments there, and she was telling me horror stories about the amalgamations. And I think someone like Manchester City Council, you know, the, the, the which, num- which runs
0: all the sort of you know social services in the UK. Yeah,
2: and it, unlike unlike local government here, has probably a much more powerful kind schools of schools. Yeah, yeah I mean. that's right. And um, the um, you know the redundancies were huge. It, it was a real hollowing out. So. So some of this is a corrective uh, to that. But it is – but let's not look sight; It's it's radical. But it's not
1: just the, – the, and the radical thing is interesting, but it's not just that. It's about complexity. It's about whether you actually – I mean Boris has got this let's get Brexit done slogan, which is – clearly market tested. It clearly speaks to a strong sentiment that pervades even sections of the kind of Remain constituency, people who are just sick, sick and, tired and tired of it, of it. Uh, and think, you know, this has to end and, you know, let's get it done. Though, kind of, of course, really it won't end. Um, obviously, Johnson's got some other policies. The, the, the Tories have got some other policies out there as well. Um And some of those are reasonably, uh, you know, sort of adventurous, I guess. But But they're kind of they're not really necessarily adventurous on the on the right wing in the way that uh, you might say Corbyns are on the left.
2: I mean, as we were talking about earlier, this is actually la- Labour think in one sense think they can win this on traditional uh, kind of spending on public services and like rebuilding the country because it really is you know is struggling on lots of so- social measures and inequality and so on. But it's a Brexit election. This yeah. really is the dominant narrative, and the Labour Party have been hobbled. Uh, or perceived to be hobbled by their kind of policy, which is which is nuanced, but seems to satisfy no no one. And it's
1: t- and they took forever to get to it anyway.
2: Yeah, I mean it, they did, and it's well, it's been there for a while, but there has been these sort of calibrations. Out, and the well, problem. Well, Corbyn's commitment to
1: a second referendum is relatively recent, at least in unequivocal t- terms.
2: Yeah, true, but uh, but I, I suppose for me the the wider issue is that. Corbyn is clearly Eurosceptic, and that's, yeah, who, that's his, who
0: believes him, right? Yeah.
2: yeah, and that's and that's the credibility gap, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's the kind of yeah, we'll give you a second referendum, but who guarantees that there will really will be a kind of Remain option within? If, if, that? if he'd
1: been a bit more solid the first time round, it probably would have been over then, there and then, you know, with a with a successful Remain vote.
2: It, and again, without wanting to be an apologist for Jeremy Corbyn, he can defend himself and his record. What I'd say about like the loss of the referendum, people pl- kind of blame Corbyn for not campaigning hard on it. Actually, the rest, the blame for this, solely, largely rests with David Cameron.
0: Absolutely, it was a,
2: it was a, it was a dreadful decision to call an in-out referendum. It was an appallingly. Weak decision. It was appallingly badly structured. It didn't have a super majority, unlike the nineteen seventy five referendum. It was to assert.
1: Certain... Sorry, just to go to that. Just so we can explain it to people, the super referendum,
2: a, a super majority idea. In other words, it
1: had to get what two thirds, or
2: yeah, or you know, sometimes it can be a threshold of sixty percent. Yeah, uh, and of course, the referendum result was was very close, fifty two forty eight. Yeah. Um, and so there's been. Yeah, a lot... he
0: called it to solve an internal political problem,
2: which yeah. was that he was being he was Pressuring. being sort of
1: pressured on his right flank yeah. by UKIP.
2: And there was, there, I mean, there's brilliant. But the, this is kind of analogous to some of the the influence of kind of News Poll. But if you look at there was brilliant um survey data released by Ipsos Mori in the last week or so, which or a couple of weeks ago, which basically said. uh it, it showed the historical, uh, responses to the question, like, how important do you think is Europe is, as a policy issue? And even up to a few months before the referendum, some less, about one, two percent of the population thought it was a really important issue. So, you know, overall, the yeah, British public th- it didn't think- was a Frank's
0: issue, you know?
2: Yeah, and that's yeah. right. And then, well, anyway, the genies out of the bottle are now British politics all over the shop. And that's my considered political science view. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> all over the shop. You've heard it here first.
1: So, look. I think on that note, we might actually end. We've been talking for some time now, and uh, we could. There's, there's, you know, a million ways in which we could keep talking about this because it is just so fascinating. We don't know what's going to happen in the in the British election, but it doesn't look all that helpful. Hopeful that it is going to actually even resolve that that Brexit question, unless, of course, the Tories get a majority in their own right, which is at least one possibility, isn't it?
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, the polls. Uh, There was very good analysis by um, John Curtis. So he's one of the kind of senior electoral pestologists, if that's the right word. Um, And he's basically saying this is is a binary election now really about what would happen. So the latest polls have a very strong majority, conservatives winning kind of majority – the only other option really or scenario that Curtis envisages, envisages is if the conservatives majority is much thinner than expected. And actually then whether Labour in a minority government uh, or in coalition could, uh, could get in. So that is, that is a distinct possibility because the conservatives currently have about 13, I think, uh, s- uh Seats up in Scotland, uh, they're likely to lose all. Well, I think. I think there's a scenario where pre- the SNP, the Scottish National Party, could win every single seat in Scotland. So, of course, that brings the genius because of-
1: Scotland was a Scotland. Scotland voted to remain, as did yes. Northern Ireland. And there are nine of eighteen uh, seats out of Northern Ireland that are held by the DUP, which uh, you know Quite- uh, the, the, the government has relied on for its majority up until now as well. So. It'd be interesting to see where they go as well in this given that it is a sort of, a, as you say, a kind of a brexit referendum so, know,
2: mas- so masquerading as an election. That's right. so if 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 Johnson wins, gets a majority, gets the brexit deal that uh, that got passed by kind of uh, parliaments before the the scrutiny one that came in comes through. Then you'll have this situation where every pretty much every single Scottish MP will represent a constituency that kind of favours um
0: a separate state. Yeah.
2: yeah. And and so then of course there will be another referendum and I think or, or the the pressure to have another Scottish referendum will come very quickly. Mm. And um And
0: Nicola Sturgeon is actually very competent.
2: Yes. The, the one the one damaging thing for the Scottish National Party at the moment is that Alex Salmond who is a former leader very popular is undergoing a kind of court case uh, for kind of behavior and uh, which is very uh, deeply unpleasant and he's denied all the allegations with the details and that can be kind of that will probably damage the the SNP brand for some up there but overall they should be they should be kind of well placed to kind of to win that through Well, we'll
1: watch all of those things with interest. Thanks, uh, Rob Mainwaring, for coming in and talking about your book, Why the Left Loses, and uh, many other issues. Uh, Thanks, Maria, also to you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Rob. Absolute pleasure. Uh, And thanks for listening. Of course, you can always contact us by Twitter on Apps Policy Forum, on the Facebook group Policy Forum Pod, or the email podcast at policyforum.net. And we will see you when uh, when next week podcast, which will be no doubt very soon. Thanks for joining us.